Welcome to Obesity, a Disease, the official Obesity Medicine Association podcast exploring the many facets of the disease of obesity. In this episode, OMA Chief Science Officer Dr. Harold Bays interviews Dr. Ethan Lazarus, the current president of the Obesity Medicine Association. Today, our guests discuss the complex relationship between cancer and obesity. Topics include the widespread lack of awareness of obesity as a major driver of both cancer and heart disease, how the steep decline of nicotine use over the past 30 years can inform us regarding possibilities for obesity management today, and the true nature of fat as a metabolically, hormonally active substance that predisposes the body to different types of cancer. Additionally, our experts discuss the management and care of patients with obesity following a cancer diagnosis, as well as the need for aggressive treatment of obesity using behavioral, medical, and surgical strategies. This podcast is presented in two parts. Today, we hear the full podcast. Obesity, a Disease podcast is brought to you by the Obesity Medicine Association, the clinical leader in obesity medicine. My name is Dr. Harold Bays, Medical Director and President of the Louisville Metabolic and Atherosclerosis Research Center located in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm also Chief Science Officer of the Obesity Medicine Association. Welcome to this program today uh, entitled Obesity, a Disease. Uh, this is a periodic podcast that's sponsored by the Obesity Medicine Association. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about a clinical practice statement uh, that was issued by the Obesity Medicine Association, and it's entitled Cancer and Obesity. And we're just fortunate to have us today, Dr. Ethan Lazarus, who is the first author on this paper. Uh, Dr. Lazarus, can you uh, tell the folks who you are and what you do? Hi, Harold. Thank you so much. And what a pleasure it is to be on the podcast. Uh, My name is Ethan Lazarus, and I've been an obesity medicine physician now for nearly 20 years. I run a practice in Greenwood Village, Colorado, where we specialize in a team approach to chronic treatment of obesity, including physician, physician assistant, registered dietitian, nutritionist, and we're skilled at using all the various uh, anti-obesity medications, uh, behavioral strategies, and that sort of thing. Also had the pleasure of being a member of the Obesity Medicine Association for nearly 20 years. I've been on their board and currently serve as the president of the Obesity Medicine Association. I also represent the Obesity Medicine Association as their delegate in the American Medical Association, trying to bring uh, the priority of obesity forward uh, for our whole medical system here in America. So again, thanks for inviting me for the podcast, and I look forward to talking about cancer. Right. Uh, So this is just so perfect that you would be the one that that we would have uh, to talk about this here today, because uh, I'm not sure that many people are aware of this intimate relationship between the obesity and the cancer. I mean, I think a lot of people know about sleep apnea and they know about orthopedic problems and they, they know about cardiovascular disease, but I'm not so sure everybody uh, has a good bead on this relationship between uh, obesity and cancer. And I think just as a, just as a start, I think it's important to emphasize that uh, if you look at the epidemiology of cancer, it's estimated that over 90% of cancer not due to genetics, but due to the environment. And if you look at specific, what they call, uh, uh, what is called population attributable fractions, uh, we find that we know about, we have a pretty good understanding about 50% of, of the cancers. And 
Uh, it's been estimated that about 19% uh, of cancers are due to cigarette smoking. About 8% uh, is due to excess uh, body weight. But what's also interesting is that uh, there are a lot of other things that uh, sometimes go with the obesity, which are things like physical inactivity and low fruit and vegetable intake and low fiber consumption and uh, the consumption of processed meats and red meat consumption and low calcium intake. These all also increase uh, the risk for cancer. So if you add them all up together, it should be no surprise that, um, that yes, I, I think we would still say that cigarette smoking is the uh, most common preventable cause of cancer, but obesity is not far behind. And for non-smokers, um, one could say that as far as an identifiable, ca uh, identifiable cause, obesity is right there at the top of the list of, of potential causes. So, so Dr. Lazarus, I'd just like to ask you this question. You know, when you, when you have these movies and you have these TV shows, and the black and white TV shows, and you see all these programs, everybody was smoking back then. There was so much cigarette smoking and not all that many people had the overweight and obesity. And nowadays, I don't even think you can put cigarette smoking on the TV. I, I think that's, that's banned. I mean, you certainly don't see it very often. Uh, but yet we certainly in, in our practices and uh, in our in our daily lives, see many patients with the overweight and the obesity. Can you can you give us a sense about what is the relative prevalence of the cigarette smoking and obesity? I mean, what what's going on there? It seems like there's been a change. Yeah, and it's been very interesting to watch during the course of my medical career because I went through medical school in the '90s, and back in those days, it's about all we talked about was smoking and trying to find strategies to help people smoking. And it's estimated back then that around 42% of Americans uh, were smoking. And uh, thanks to, I think, the efforts of our health system, our American Medical Association, um, public uh, education, physician education of their patients, new pharmacotherapy treatments, um, making it difficult to smoke. So you can't just you know, smoke in the front half of the airplane. <laughs> then the back half of the airplane was the non-smoking. So making it uh, so you couldn't smoke in restaurants, couldn't smoke on airplanes. And what we've seen is the uh, prevalence of uh, smoking has gone from 42% uh, back then down to 15% today. Now, of course, the flip side is back uh, in those days, we didn't talk a lot about obesity. It wasn't that common. There weren't that many heavy folks. It's estimated uh, back in those days that only around 13% of Americans had uh, the disease of obesity. And this is completely flip-flop, where today it's estimated that 42% of Americans have the disease of obesity. So it's certainly my opinion that we've got our work to do so that the obesity doesn't keep spiraling out of control um, and driving up healthcare costs and leading to, to more and more problems. And I'm certainly hopeful that through education, both of the public and the healthcare system, uh, we can do for obesity uh, the same successful types of strategies that we were able to implement for helping Americans uh, overcome nicotine. Uh, look, that is so important. And I, I really need to follow up on that. You know, Ethan, so, so many times we hear people, they, they're discouraged. They're, there's a lot of times as individuals, there's sort of a defeatism. And among clinicians, there's sort of a, a sadness, uh, a, a sort of uh, a sense that there's really that it's really hard to make an impact upon obesity. But, but I'll bet that back in the day, people said the same thing about cigarette smoking. 
And yet through the very initiatives that you talked about right there with the American Medical Association and, and uh, strategies that were implemented, I mean, it really did matter and it made a difference. I mean, I know a lot of times people say, well, government really can't help or private sector really can't help, but I don't think that's true. I mean, I think there's as much an opportunity to make a huge difference by uh, innovation and intervention and just thoughtful approaches uh, to, again, the public sector and the private sector and such, that we, we can make a difference. I mean, am I being too optimistic? I mean, what do you think? No, I mean, you can definitely draw a lot of parallels. And I mean, I'd be curious, I don't know the statistic for the number of people that die from uh, cigarette-related cancers these days, but I'd imagine that, that with the prevalence of smoking going from 42 to 15%, we've made a huge impact. Things like uh, taxing cigarettes, things like making it not allowable um, to smoke in most public venues, uh, things like warning labels uh, on the cigarettes. I think all of these initiatives were difficult to implement and there was a lot of, of pushback. I remember restaurants were worried they could go out of business if they wouldn't allow people to smoke in the restaurant and so on and so on. But um, at the end of the day, these things did work. So we're certainly at a precipice with obesity where we can learn from our success in nicotine. And I think we could apply what we've learned to obesity and make a real difference. And and look, for all, for all those people out there who think that you know, think this is government oppression or whatever. Look, to my fellow libertarians out there, a lot of what I, I think that was done that was effective is education. And there's nothing oppressive about informing patients. Uh, and, 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 and people were informed about the dangers of cigarette smoking. And, and I think uh, that there's the analogy there would be uh, to get people educated about appropriate nutrition and, and get people educated about uh, uh, physical activity and get people educated about this connection with obesity to not just diabetes, hypertension, uh, dyslipidemia, heart disease, but also the topic we're talking about today, which, which is cancer. I mean, what's your sense about the potential of just education alone in, in uh, improving the lives and the health of patients with obesity? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, I was, I was reading the other day uh, I was curious uh, in terms of how many Americans actually die from cancer every year. And uh, looking at the CDC website, it's uh, roughly 602,000 Americans dying annually of cancer, which isn't that far behind heart disease, which is of course the number one cause, uh, almost 700,000 deaths. Uh, but I don't think a lot of people recognize that obesity is a major driver of uh, cancer, let alone heart disease. A lot of people think that, you know, cancer just happens, that it's bad luck and don't necessarily realize there's a lot of things that we're doing um, that can put us at risk for cancer. You know, for example, people understand, you know, the value of staying out of the sun and using sunscreen to prevent melanoma. People understand the value of not smoking uh, to prevent uh, lung cancer. People might even understand the benefit, for example, of getting uh, vaccinated for hepatitis or vaccinated uh, for HPV to prevent uh, liver cancer and cervical cancer. But I don't think a lot of people realize that fat, it's not this metabolically inert substance that just sits there and, and pads the body. The fat is actually very active metabolically and hormonally. And it's actually making our body far more prone to developing multiple types of cancer. 
And that by uh, carrying all the extra weight, unfortunately, we're pouring gas on the cancer epidemic. And so uh, I know we'll talk about it as, as we go forward, but uh, reducing the body fat mass can have profound benefits for reducing cancer risk, much like if you have a person who's a smoker and you help them quit smoking, over time, their risk for lung cancer gradually gets lower and lower. So, so let's get into it. I know there's a lot of listeners out there that are saying, okay, you say that obesity uh, contributes to cancer, but you know, what's the mechanism? You know, how does that happen? Well, I think you've already answered the question. Uh, the fact is that adipose tissue uh, and the fat cells are very active from uh, an immune standpoint and from an endocrine standpoint with regard to hormone production and such. And what happens is when the fat cells become enlarged the adipose tissue expands with the obesity, you get this uh, adiposopathic cytokine production, this increase in these cytokines, which contributes to cancer. You get relative hypoxia. So, that, so you, you're outgrowing the vascular supply. So you get this relative hypoxia, which increases the risk of cancer. You have an increase in oxidative stress. You alter the tumor microenvironment. Uh, you have these cancer-promoting hormones that are produced, which increase the risk of cancer. And then you have unhealthful nutrition and physical inactivity and such. I mean, just as a, you know, one example, <clears throat> just showing the analogy between cigarette smoking and obesity, uh, with both of these, you have an increase in what we call reactive oxygen species which um, I think many people know contribute to aging and fibrosis and DNA damage, but also increases the risk of cancer. So, so I think just, just that brief description alone, I think we can understand why it is that um, when you do get an increased risk of cancer, what kind of cancers are they gonna be? Well, by and large, with a few exceptions, uh, it's gonna be uh, cancers of the gastrointestinal system, cancers of the genital urinary system, and cancer of sex hormone-sensitive tissues. Why is that? Because as I mentioned before, when you have an increase in uh, fat cells or an increase in the adipose tissue organ, you have disruption of uh, all these hormones and such, and many of them predispose uh, to cancer. So uh, for the listener out there that's saying, okay, uh, you've given me, given me a lot of categories there, You've given me an overview, but but I want to know for my patient, uh, what is what is that accepted list? That accepted list that's out there that maybe people talk about most about the types of cancers that are most related or most attributable to the obesity. Do we have such a list? Yeah, sure. And thanks for asking that, Harold. So again, it's going to be your female cancers, so uh, breast cancer, particularly postmenopausal. Uh, of course, ovarian cancer and uterine cancer as well. Uh, it's going to be the gastrointestinal cancers, including colon and rectal cancer, esophageal cancer, gallbladder cancer, liver cancer, uh, pancreas, and stomach cancer. And then in addition to that, uh, kidney cancer, uh, meningioma, multiple myeloma, uh, and thyroid cancer. I believe I named all 13 cancers. And, you know, these are our real cancers that we clinicians see in our practices, uh, unfortunately, on a daily, on a weekly basis. Uh, I was heartbroken just a few weeks ago. One of my patients 
uh, unfortunately, had contracted uh, gallbladder cancer and 11 months later uh, passed away at the age of 59, somebody I've known a long time. And we all know patients uh, that have suffered with, with all of these types of cancers. And the idea that we might be able to prevent these cancers and, and prevent the morbidity and mortality that patients are suffering uh, every day, I think is very promising and gives us a, a reason to really light that fire uh, to help us uh, help our patients find effective strategies to get weight off. So, so you've given a, a, a practical patient example. I wonder if you could just, um, just delve into to that just a little bit more. Uh, let's say a patient comes in and, and they've been diagnosed with cancer. And, and of course, one of the first questions that people have is they're like, how did this happen? How did I, how did I get this cancer? I mean, the cancers you mentioned, these are not rare cancers, right? These are the most common, uh, basically some of the most common cancers that are out there when you talk about breast cancer or colon cancer, or, you know, some of these other cancers and such. How often in your practice uh, do you have a sense that uh, patients are either uh, willing to consider or already are considering whether or not uh, their obesity contributed to their cancer? Is that something well-known or is that something that they're, they're surprised to hear about? Well, it's, it's actually a very tricky subject because, you know, uh, at the time of treatment, first we got to get them through that acute phase of treatment um, before we start talking about uh, things like preventing recurrence and, and whatnot. But um, you've got to be really careful with that patient because you don't want them to feel like the development of cancer was their own fault. That if, um, if only I hadn't been so heavy, I would have never gotten the cancer. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the body fat mass is just one of many risk factors. There's, a, you know, environmental exposure and, you know, age of first child and breastfeeding status and, uh, you know, exposure uh, to viruses for some of these, these cancers, uh, genetic predisposition for many of these cancers. Uh, so I think another way that I might approach that question would be that we make a lot of cancer diagnoses during weight loss treatment that had previously been masked or missed. So for example, when a person loses 20 or 30 pounds, it becomes much easier to perform a thyroid exam. And I can tell you during my clinical practice, I found five or six thyroid cancers that were there. They were there before the patient started losing weight and we were able to feel them and see them as the patient lost weight. Similarly, we know because of this topic of weight bias that people as they get heavier and heavier are less and less inclined to see their healthcare provider a lot of times because they've been treated poorly at, at visits with their healthcare providers. Um, a lot of patients when they're coming to see me have not had the recommended cancer screenings. They haven't had a mammogram, they haven't had their colonoscopy, they haven't had a physical. Sometimes they haven't even had lab in a long time. And so a lot of times engaging in uh, obesity treatment, we can get those patients back into the medical system, get them screened for all the recommended screenings and any additional screenings that might be indicated for that patient based on their unique risk. So uh, now to get back to your question, how do they feel when they learn that weight is related? Well, I think what I like to tell them is that losing weight and sustaining weight loss might significantly lower their risk of uh, recurrence and might significantly improve their odds at surviving uh, their instance of cancer, especially for the 13 cancers we talked about. Well, before we move on to the next topic here, uh, you said something that's very curious to me. You said that you found within your 
your practice that um, many of your patients have not had routine preventive uh, uh, medical screenings uh, that may occur uh, normally in patients who don't have the obesity. I mean, I think I know the reason for this, but why don't you tell the folks, why, why do you think that is? Why do you think it is that studies certainly support that people with the obesity do not get the preventive meta, uh, medical screening that other folks get? Why, why is that? Yeah, unfortunately, as the person's body mass index gets higher and higher, uh, patients receive a poor and poorer quality of medical care. Uh, studies have shown that healthcare providers a lot of times might not use good language with patients. They might blame the patient for their weight. They might just tell the patient that if they could just uh, eat less and move more, the obesity would go away. They had a patient this week that uh, the doctor told the patient um, that if she just didn't buy the food, then she would be less inclined to eat it. And this was the treatment for the obesity. In fact, we see that uh, according to one study, 69% of patients with a high body mass index had experienced weight bias in the healthcare setting. Maybe the doctor didn't have a blood pressure cuff that fit the patient, or they couldn't get an MRI scan because they didn't fit uh, in the scanner, or they were weighed in a public space and derogatory comments were made by the medical assistant. So we have a lot of bias among healthcare providers that the obesity is the patient's sole fault and, and it's due to laziness or a lack of willpower and really not a good acceptance among healthcare providers that obesity is a medical problem. And while certainly there's a behavioral component to it, that, that's not the whole picture. So as we're educating healthcare providers about cancer, we also wanna be educating health, healthcare providers about compassionate treatment for patients of all shapes and sizes so that a patient doesn't feel embarrassed uh, to see their doctor because of their weight and they know that they're gonna be welcomed into the doctor's office. Well, um, well that's just heartbreaking. <laughs> so I think I'm gonna flip to here, try to, try to, I mean, that's just, I mean, it's just so true and it's, and it's just so sad, but I, I, wanna, I wanna flip and, and see if maybe we can go on, maybe look, at, look to the positive. Once they're diagnosed as having cancer, um, the initial uh, approach is to really address the cancer head on and, and you know, get that treatment going and such. But concurrently with that, uh, look, I, I think there's pretty good evidence that there's certain types of foods uh, that people can eat if they're on, if they're engaged in healthful nutrition uh, that can help combat cancer. Things like citrus fruits, things like apples and cherries and grapes and grapefruits and these types of things, or berries. A uh, lot, a lot of evidence for berries. Every night, I eat blueberries, and I like blueberries. But I like to think that um, you know it's helping me out with with uh, disease prevention and specifically cancer prevention. Also, uh, cruciferous and green leafy vegetables and such uh, are thought to have uh, anti uh, carcinogenic uh, you know properties. And then there are other foods like you know beans, legumes, and nuts and high fiber. And in fact, some coffees and such are thought to have ability to prevent uh, or improve the prognosis of, of cancer. So I think there's definitely things we can do from a nutrition standpoint. As far as physical activity, people say, well, what about physical activity? Well, look, uh, increasing physical activity can reduce the risk of cancer onset or recurrence. Routine physical exercise can inhibit cancer cell proliferation, can increase cancer cell apoptosis, 
can it favorably affect that inflammation you talked about, that immune response that you talked about, the metabolism that you talked about, uh, that, can, that physical activity can enhance uh, the effectiveness of cancer treatments. And uh, equally as important to all of these things is that, look, a lot of times people, when they get cancer, they become debilitated and such. And so routine physical activity can really help out uh, during cancer treatments to, to uh, help address these, these complications of potential frailty. So a lot of things we can do, but I think the question that's going to be on the mind of a lot of obesity medicine clinicians out there is, well, that's great that you've really worked on the nutrition. We agree with that. And you're working on physical activity and we agree with that. But does weight reduction in patients with the obesity, weight reduction, okay, does weight reduction or fat reduction, does that help patients? So I will ask you, Dr. Lazarus, does, does weight reduction uh, improve the prognosis in patients uh, with specific regard to cancer? Yeah, so interestingly, this is a, a question that's been up in the air for a long time. And just last month, just uh, in June, uh, there was a large study that got published looking at 30,000 people with a high body mass index. And then they took a look over 10 years at the cancer incidence uh, among the uh, just control group and then a group that lost a lot of weight. So they had a group that lost uh, roughly 50 pounds and kept that off. And interestingly, comparing the group that didn't lose weight and the group that did, uh, the group that lost weight lowered their risk of uh, cancer incidence by 32%. And they also lowered their risk of dying by cancer, uh, dying from cancer by 43%. So that's a humongous risk reduction, lowering the risk of dying from cancer by almost half by getting the body weight under control. Now, the body weight didn't get under control just by eating blueberries uh, or walking on the treadmill. Um, no. Patients had medical care. Patients lost weight with their doctor. So the group of patients that lost weight and kept it off were a group that had bariatric and metabolic surgery. And they were successful in, in keeping off an average of 19% of their body weight. And it's reasonable to believe that if we can help patients achieve similar weight loss, weight loss using medical means or uh, behavioral means or uh, combination, that they should experience a similar risk reduction for cancer. So we really, uh, I, I don't think we can accept, you know, just lower the weight a few pounds for the heavier person. Uh, we really want to treat obesity aggressively, like we treat blood pressure or like we treat uh, diabetes. So, you know, if a person has high blood pressure and the blood pressure is 180, we don't just try to lower it five points to 175. We, we treat them aggressively. We try to get the blood pressure normal so that we're not going to have a heart attack or stroke. And similarly, for our patients with obesity, especially at a higher body mass index, say above 35, we need to be treating this aggressively. We need to be using not only behavioral strategies, but medical and surgical strategies if we're really going to turn this thing around and make a significant reduction in their cancer risk. And, and I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at, and again, not just limited to, to surge, I don't want to pe get people uh, the wrong idea that, that uh, improvement in these hormonal or inflammatory uh, factors is restricted to, to surgery because it's not. I mean, the fact is uh, weight reduction uh, in patients with the cancer or at risk for cancer, you're going to reduce cancer onset or recurrence with weight reduction. You're going to inhibit cancer cell proliferation. You're going to 
increase uh, cancer cell apoptosis. You're going to favorably affect inflammation, immune response, body metabolism. And uh, in addition to all of these things, uh, oh, by the way, you're also going to improve their quality of life. You're going to improve their risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes mellitus and all sorts of other things. So, so there really is uh, evidence, evidence base and evidence basis uh, for the benefits of weight reduction in patients with obesity with regard to cancer, as well as all these other things that, um, all these other uh, health issues that adversely uh, affect our patients. So that is just a, just a, I think a wonderful overview of the interrelationship between obesity and cancer. And Ethan, I, I would just like for you to just give a, just a, you know, summer here at the end, the folks listening to this program maybe weren't aware of this intimate relationship between the obesity and the cancer. From your experience as a clinician, and certainly from your experience as president of the Obesity Medicine Association, uh, what sort of practical advice or guidance could you give to the clinicians out there with specific regard uh, to uh, the obesity and cancer? Yeah, so patients come in all the time and they're sharing with their healthcare provider that they have a sister or a mom that had breast cancer and they're concerned about their risk. And it really opens up a door for the healthcare provider to talk about the patient's weight in a positive way and to let the patient know that you understand that that's a concern for them and there's something we can work on today to help them lower their cancer risk. But that the patient might not really have insight that their body mass index is really causing them risk for all these other things and that it's treatable and we can do something about it. I find that when we talk to the patient about their obesity as a disease, like hypertension or diabetes or cancer, if you'd like, that patients warm up to the idea that it can be treated, it can be treated successfully. So we can really use this to tell people, look, you can lower your risk of dying from cancer by 42%, 43% if we treat your weight and, and treat it seriously. So uh, let's give you all the tools to do the best job with your weight that we can so we can lower your risk and improve your quality of life uh, as much as possible. And look, I, you know, maybe your experience is different than mine, but it's been my experience that uh, you tell somebody that you want to engage in cardiovascular risk prevention and, and they will listen. They will listen. But if you tell somebody you can reduce their risk of cancer, they're really going to listen. Is that has that been your experience? Oh, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. A lot of people view heart disease as something that just happens as a result of aging, but there's definitely a fear factor with, with uh, cancer. And so telling patients strategies where they could lower their cancer risk, I think it's very compelling to help them get motivated and uh, get to work with you on getting as healthy as they can. Well, and there you go. I think that's, that's, a, that's an outstanding summary. Uh, so Dr. Lazarus, thank you so much. This has been I think it's been an amazing program about a topic I don't think people talk about enough. And uh, hopefully we've just given people just a glimpse of the kind of information that's out there. And again, uh, this is all derived from the clinical practice statement put out by the Obesity Medicine Association. Dr. Ethan Lazarus is the uh, lead author on the paper. And I uh, want to thank you uh, for, uh, I think, just an outstanding program. And I want to thank you, the listeners. Uh, for attending this uh, this uh, podcast sponsored by the Obesity Medicine Association. And my name is Dr. Harold Bays, and you've been listening to Obesity, a Disease. Thank you for listening to this episode of Obesity, a Disease. 
For more information about obesity medicine podcasts and other valuable resources from the clinical leaders in obesity medicine, please visit www.obesitymedicine.org backslash podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode and want to listen regularly, head over to iTunes where you can subscribe, rate, and leave us a much appreciated review. The views expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily represent the opinions, beliefs, or policies of the Obesity Medicine Association or its members. Please join us again for our next episode of Obesity, a Disease.